Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, November 17th, 2014. Yeah, it's, uh, this is a themeless episode today. It's another one of those stinking pots. <laughs> That's weird. That's all I gotta say. It's weird. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you open up your Bible, stop and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no, well, crazy shortage of bizarre things being said out there. We take the time to... You just. <sighs> Slow down, take a breath here, open our Bible, see if that's what that really says in God's Word. And lo and behold, yeah, yeah it's, it's as if Jesus knew what the last days would be like. I mean, you know, when the disciples are asking what, the, you know, what, what will be the sign of Jesus' return, there in Matthew 24, first thing he says is, make sure no one deceives you. Yeah, you think there's a reason why the first thing Jesus says is, make sure no one deceives you is, probably because uh, Satan, the great deceiver, is just going to proliferate a whole bunch of lies regarding God and Christ and, you know, just mislead people and take their focus off of Jesus and what he's done for them and have them chasing after, you know, their spiritual tales. I mean, it's it's unbelievable what's happening in the church today. But uh, rather than sit here and lament it, you know, well, we do lament it, but, you know, it's not the only thing we do here. We do lament what's happening in the church. But, you know, it's like, hey, you know, when somebody turns off the light, light a candle, you know, do do something. So uh, what we do here, by the way, if you're new to fighting for the faith, this is an extremely politically incorrect program. Uh, what we do here would not be tolerated by any of the political correct people on either the right or the left, uh, which is why I have to have my own radio station in order to broadcast my own radio program. Kind of, you know, that's how that works. But yeah, so the idea is, is uh, we are known here to uh, ruffle a few feathers and, and listen, we're not afraid to do it. Sometimes that is a necessary thing. The idea here is, is that this program is not about ruffling feathers. Ruffling feathers is, well, kind of an unwelcome side effect for what we do. The idea here is is that, well, if your feathers are ruffled, then, you know, you may be motivated to say, you know, that Rosebro guy, he is such a gunky head. I can't stand that guy. I'm sick and tired of him doing what he's doing. I mean, I think that these teachers, he's... 
you know, featuring on his program actually are good Bible teachers. Or I don't think that guy teaches sound doctrine. So you know what you, I'm going to do? I'm going to open up my Bible. and I'm going to prove that guy wrong. This is a good place to be. You know, in fact, I welcome that challenge. But uh, see, that's the thing. You kind of have to open your Bible. <laughs> and you got to read it. You got to understand it. And uh, over and again, I should warn you that many people have tried, many a person has tried to uh, set out to disprove me, opened up their Bible, and lo and behold, they found, whoa, he was right. That person is twisting God's word, and they're, they're not teaching the truth. And yeah, that that's generally how that goes. So just understand that... Uh, you know, we've received literally thousands of emails over the years that we've been broadcasting from people who've taken up that challenge. And, and here's the idea. Listen, I don't want you to give me the benefit of the doubt. I don't even want you to listen with an open mind. Read with, listen, listen with an open Bible. That's what the idea here is. And so also keep in mind, we try to have a little bit of fun along the way. I mean, what's the point in doing theology if you can't have a little bit of fun? I mean, so the, that's kind of the idea. Um, and so, it, and part of that is just due to the fact that so many of the things being said in the name of Jesus, in the name of God nowadays, in visible, in, in you know, in churches within the visible Christian church, uh, <laughs> are so crazy. It, it's their own, hu- it's, it's, well, they, they create their own humor. That's the right way to put it. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And like I said, normally we have themes here. If I don't tell you, that means there is a theme. If I say that there is no theme, that means there is no theme. Uh, and uh, so usually what I try to do is I try to take segments and work them together into a theological, doctrinal, or apologetic theme so that all of the horses are kind of pulling in the same direction. You know what I mean? But uh, today, yeah, no, the, the it, today's episode's like herding cats. The horses are not pulling in the same direction. We've changed animals, and good luck catching, capturing what these things are. I mean, it, this is going to be all over the place. So we're going to begin... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to begin with a um, Michael Chitwood update. And, oh man, this man will be making many more appearances here at Fighting for the Faith. We will be listening to Dr. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Michael Chitwood. <laughs> what is his doctorate in? Anyway, we'll be listening to Dr. Michael Chitwood <laughs> describing and talking about the law of the garbage truck. Did you? Yeah, are you familiar with the law of the garbage truck? I. Never haven't heard this, the law of the garbage truck. And by the way, we will be introducing our Michael Chitwood update music. And I got to thank you all, those of you who've submitted, um, you know, potential uh, Michael Chitwood update music uh, to be considered for upcoming Mike, uh, Michael Chitwood segments. Uh, yeah, but each and every one of them, although it kind of captured maybe something you've heard from Michael Chitwood when you. Look at the grand swath, the big, <laughs> the big vista that is uh, the, his YouTube channel. Uh, every one of the submissions failed in this regard because it didn't capture the essence of the whole forest of this man's teaching. <laughs> so we've we've zeroed in on what we think is uh, the perfect Michael Chitwood update music, and we'll be pre- uh, premiering that. Very shortly. Uh, then we're going to switch gears. And uh, we've noted here at Fighting for the Faith that, um, uh, well, William Tapley, the third, third eagle of the apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times, that he is a, um, well, he's a false prophet. 
But uh, he begs to differ. And so actually we're going to be listening to a, a very recent video of his, which begins with him singing a hymn. So I should warn you, you will be listening to William Tapley sing a cappella. He does not sing along with his Casio in this particular episode of his uh, <clears throat> infamous YouTube channel. But anyway, uh, he's the name of the episode is entitled Barack Obama, Bible Prophecy and the Election. I, you know, I'm surprised that I didn't even think about this. You know, it's like, of course, William Tapley would want to weigh in on the results of the, uh, the, the, the midterm elections that just took place here in the United States. So I can't believe I didn't even think, you know, to like look to see what he thought about it. Well, when, when I was out there perusing his uh, channel, looking for, you know, his latest installments, I came across this. But in the process of him talking about the election, he then explains how every one of his prophecies, even though they haven't all come true, that they will eventually, therefore that exonerates him, and they will eventually come true. <clears throat> yeah, no joke. Then we're going to take a break, and uh, we're going to get to that uh, T.D. Jake segment that we didn't get to last week called I'm in Transition. And uh, if we don't, you know, if if after we listen to that and there's still some time, then I'll circle back and I'll listen. We'll, we'll listen to a little bit of um, Brian Houston from uh, Hillsong in Sydney, Australia, and <laughs> this is a sermon of his. And you know, if I were to have you know, I'd say here, fill in the blank. Broad is the road that leads to what? You know, to destruction. You know, narrow is the road that leads to what? Um, narrow is the path that leads to you know, yeah. Anyway, uh, if you <laughs> after listening to Brian Houston preaching on this. I can't make heads or tails of what's supposed to be broad and wide and narrow. And anyway, so we'll take a listen to that. And then in hour number two, we're going to head down to Church by the Glades and listen to a sermon by David Hughes where he gives the standard seeker-driven reinforcement speech that justifies all of the things that they're doing methodologically in these uh, seeker-driven churches. And uh, and the sermon is about dealing with critics, you know. That's you know. And, but the name of the sermon ser- series is Foodies, Foodies. And you know, I I got to tell you, I've been out of the loop. I don't really watch a lot of television, like at all. In fact, um, barely any. And um, I I didn't know Foodie was like like the in word. I had no clue, you know. So I had to look it up. It's like, oh, I. I Realize that there was like entire television programs dedicated to these topics. Anyway, so we're going to be listening to uh, his sermon on the Foodies uh, sermon series, talking about how to deal with critics. And uh, if you've been listening for a long time to Fighting for the Faith, then you'll uh, recognize the metaphor that he's coming up with. But we'll go ahead and critique it along the way and demonstrate what is actually wrong with what he's saying, aside from the fact it's not found in the Bible. Uh, it actually contradicts Scripture, and we'll ask that question again, to whom or for whom? For whom do pastors exist? For whom do pastors exist? So with that, we're going to get into the program property. Uh, proper, property. We're going to get into the program property. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Brain and tongue, not in sync today. I'm going to have to do the Wonder Twin power, see if I can activate, you know, a little bit of <clears throat> synchronicity between my brain and my tongue. Anyway, uh, here's our <clears throat> brand new, now to be revealed, uh, Michael Chitwood update music. And as we play more segments from Michael Chitwood, you, I think, will come to agree that this is the perfect update music for Michael Chitwood. Here we go.
Yeah, that's right. So um, that's our Michael Chitwood update music. And we're going to be listening to a, uh, well, an inspirational video posted on the Michael Chitwood's YouTube channel entitled The Law of the Garbage Truck. The the Law of the Garbage Truck. So uh, hang on to your hats. Here's Michael Chitwood. Hey, this is Dr. Michael Chitwood, and I'm coming to you today because I want to talk to you about the law of the garbage truck. Yeah, the law of the garbage truck. Yeah, I don't think I found that in scripture anywhere. You wouldn't think that that would be a very good subject, but you would be surprised. Let me tell you what happened. I'm in New York. I'm in a taxi cab, and we're going down the road. And you know how taxi cab drivers are in New York, don't you? And, I mean, we're going. All of a sudden, a car decides to pull out from a parking space in front of us. The cab driver puts on the brakes. We swerve. It squeals. I mean, everything was going off. He was trying to miss this car. He did. We almost hit it, but he got up beside the car. And, I mean, he was shaking his fist and saying some bad words. I mean, you could tell he was angry. He was mad. But the car beside us and the driver was so nice, rolled the window down and said, I'm so sorry I didn't mean to do it, and waved and said, you know, have a beautiful day. I asked the cab driver, I said, what happened there? And he said, all of a sudden, this car pulled out, and he got really mad about it. It's kind of like a lot of people. They're garbage trucks. They're full of anger. They're full of... (laughs) You lost me. (laughs) Okay. So, So he begins with talking about a trip inside of a taxi cab in New York City. And the story that he tells doesn't even include a garbage truck. (laughs) (laughs) So now, well, it's the law of the garbage truck. Well, then where was the garbage truck in the taxi story in New York? I I don't understand why you told that because there was no garbage truck in the story. Frustrations. They're full of things that make them bad. It's just dumping. People are dumping on you all the time. And if you let people dump on you, pretty soon your garbage is going to be piled up and running over. (laughs) I can't stand it. This guy is going to kill me. Okay. So, if you if you let people dump on you, you know, soon your your garbage is gonna be. (laughs) Well, maybe I should call a taxi. You think you have to do with it? You can't just leave it in you. You're gonna dump it on somebody else. Let me tell you something. Yeah, please tell me something. I'm loving this, man. Somebody's gonna dump on you. Yeah. You better make sure that you're able to make sure that it doesn't happen. You don't want any- <laughs> What kind of advice is that? So if someone wants to dump on you, you better make sure it doesn't happen. <laughs> this isn't even coherent. <laughs> what on earth? A dumping on you. I want to remind you today that this is something that can change your life. What? The law of the dump truck? This is Michael Chitwood, and I want you to know this for sure. That if this has inspired you or has helped you live a better life, 
that I want you to inspire others. I want you to go down. I just ask you to go down at the bottom and click on share with your friends, your timeline, and your news feed. <laughs> Were you inspired by that little short <clears throat> inspirational <laughs> video <laughs> about the law of the dump truck? Oh, my, was that bizarre. Just like Looney Tunes crazy, if you know what I mean. Now, real quick, I uh, received an audio file put together by a listener by the name of Austin. I'm not sure where, well, where Austin is from. And don't say, well, he's maybe he's from Austin, Texas. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. But anyway, he sent me a little commercial snippet, if you would, uh, for the Prophecy Club. Yeah, it's a, it's a Prophecy Club commercial. And boy, I'm, I'm tempted to put this into the Max Holiday uh, rotation because it's a... Uh, it's kind of one of those things. But let me play for you the, uh, the, this commercial for the Glory of Zion Prophecy Club that Austin put together because I think it's worth passing along. Uh, here we go. Glory of Zion Prophecy Club is the country's number one spot for live prophecy. He hits a brick wall and he breaks through. He breaks through and the breath comes into him. Bringing you the best prophets nightly as seen at Bethel Church, Morningstar Fellowship Church, New Life Church, and many more. Glory of Zion Prophecy Club also presents the family-friendly prophecies of co-prophet of the end times, William Tapley. Danny DeVito, he is the Antichrist. Reserve your tickets online at gloryofzionprophecy.com or call our box office at 888-564-2243. Yeah, there we go. So commercial for the Glory of Zion Prophecy Club. Oh, man, I, I clearly have set a bad example for people. You know, now they're making their own satirical audios. Anyway, moving along. That's right, time for a William Tapley update. Doom and gloom coming soon. Listen to 30. is telling us the end is coming soon very soon you'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon doom and gloom very soon rapture comes at night or noon doom and gloom very soon if you're ready you will meet the bride and groom all right, that's William Tapley. Uh, yeah, he uh, sings for himself. Now, this latest video uh, that we'll be reviewing is entitled Barack Obama, Bible Prophecy and the Election. And uh, if you've ever wondered, uh, why, why does uh, William Tapley continue to prophesy when his prophecies haven't come true? You know, like when he prophesied that the Super Bowl wouldn't happen, you know, things like that. Well, he's aware of his uh, woefully lacking track record and he actually comments on it in this video but he also gives us some you know some prophetic insights regarding the the uh, recently concluded elections here in the united states of america here's william tapley oh almighty king teach us thy name to sing teach us to praise Father all-glorious, now and victorious, come and reign over us, ancient of days. Well, that was mainly to get my throat clear so I can do this very brief video on the elections 
And I should tell you, I am a registered Republican, so I am sort of celebrating. And the election was the good news. In other words, the policies of our president have been repudiated. However, that makes Barack Obama a much more dangerous leader. He is, after all, the leopard in Daniel 7.6. A leopard is a dangerous animal. He is the lion in Jeremiah 50, verse 44. And he is the last king of the south in Daniel 11, verse number 40. Obama will now fulfill his Bible prophecy. And incidentally, I predicted four years ago that the Republicans would win both the House and the Senate. Yeah, you predicted that four years ago, and it didn't happen until, like, just now. That prophecy was delayed. <laughs> no, no, no. See, that's not how that works. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so so here, here's the deal. If, you know, let's say two years from now the presidential election is coming up, and I say, I'm prophesying that so-and-so is going to win the election. If that person doesn't win the election, my prophecy failed and I'm a false prophet. That's how this works. <laughs> William Tapley, yes, four years ago you predicted that the Republicans would win both the House and the Senate during a particular election. Not this one, but the one four years ago. Actually, it came true. I feel somewhat like Jonah in that respect. You feel like who? Jonah prophesied that Nineveh would be destroyed in 40 days. They were not destroyed in 40 days because they repented enough to hold back that chastisement from all. Yeah, uh, see, that's the thing. Jonah didn't want to prophesy to them because they knew he knew they would repent and God would be merciful. Okay, he wanted to see the destruction of the Ninevites. That's really what he wanted to see happen. And uh, But see, the thing is, it's not that Jonah's prophecy didn't come true. It's that destruction was basically promised them if they didn't repent. But they did repent. So it's, yeah, you, you likening yourself to Jonah is ridiculous. God. However, Nineveh was eventually destroyed. And even the Super Bowl will eventually not be held, even though the 44th Super Bowl was held. Yeah, that's right. You prophesied that the 44th Super Bowl would not take place. You actually hold on, got onto your you know YouTube channel, whipped out your uh, your camera there, and shot yourself actually saying that the Super Bowl wouldn't take place, Super Bowl number 44. Yes, I'm sure there is a time somewhere in the future when there will be no more Super Bowls. But that doesn't mean that you correctly prophesied that there would be, you know, yeah, you get what I'm saying. Whoo, boy, yeah. No, <laughs> yep, there's just like no objective evidence to deal with this particular subjective spirituality, if you know what I mean. And all of my predictions will eventually come true, and that's because they are in the Bible. So it's not that hard to understand, really. Yeah, really, where in the Bible... Did it say that the Republicans would win both the House and the Senate? Where in the Bible does it say that the Super Bowl was going to be skipped for Super Bowl 44? Where does it say that again? As the last king of the South, in Daniel 11, he will provoke Putin, who was the last king of the North. World War III began, as I predicted, back on November 23rd, 
2010. <laughs> so, World War Three has been raging for... We're now on year four. I mean, so who's winning? I mean... Uh, which armies are getting ready to invade which and who who are the different sides in World War Three again since World War Three started in 2010? <laughs> who boy, talk about unconquerable ignorance. And don't forget, Jesus said it would be like a woman in labor. In other words, the events get worse and closer together as time goes on. And Obama has been provoking Russia in Georgia, in Ukraine, in the Middle East, throughout Egypt, in Syria, and Iran. And Bible prophecy will now be fulfilled because Obama can do very little domestically when both the House and the Senate are in the hands of the opposite party. About the only options left to him, if he is going to do anything in the next two years, is to exercise his duties as commander-in-chief. And he has been perverting his duties by provoking wars. That's all he has left. That is what you can expect. And this is very serious because in Bible prophecy, America is the whore of Babylon, the scarlet beast, she rides as international communism. Communism hates capitalism. We can see that in the headlines every day. And eventually Putin will take no more of this, and he will do what he has prophesied to do. The whore Babylon will be burned with fire in one hour by the scarlet beast. All right, so there you go. Those of you like me living in the United States, I hope you have a good nuclear bunker. Because <laughs> you know William Tapley, I mean, I mean, eventually all of his prophecies come true, and that means that well, you know, Russia's about ready to destroy the United States, and it's only going to take an entire hour to do so. So there you go. I um, don't know what to do with that, but uh, that now we understand how William Tapley uh, it kind of evades the uh, the fact that he is a false prophet by <laughs> well you know, coming up with his own way of interpreting prophecy and how they're fulfilled. And since the, all of his prophecies will eventually fulfill, he's, you know, he's clearly not a false prophet, but a true prophet. And I mean, who knew? I mean, you know, World War Three has been raging now for four years. I mean, yeah, I'm hoping it comes to a close sometime soon. So, all right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a T.D. Jakes update and a potential Brian Houston update. Depends on how long it takes us to get through this T.D. Jakes thing. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> 
Holiday's Birdcage Theatre presents Church Day Select. Flying. They're flying the code orange flag. It's the SSF Audacity. This is our chance, men. This egregious foe has been plaguing the seas for long enough. To arms! Man the battle stations and hoist the colors. Aye, aye, sir. Man the battle stations and hoist the colors. Drummer and man battle station. Aye, aye, sir. You heard the man. Get to work. Come on, get going. The enemy's not going to wait for us. Put your back to your night. Come on, get those spiders. Damn, we're out. No warning. It's okay. Come on. Go, 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 go. Captain, sir, they're turning to meet us. With this clear weather, we couldn't have had the element of surprise. Well, no matter. We have the wind on our side, and our men are ready. We should be pulling up alongside them any minute now. Give me a status report! Sir, the enemy ship has us outgunned by at least three to one. The gunner's mates are reporting that we're running low on gunpowder and half the crew is suffering from Montezuma's revenge. Never fear, my good man, for it says that with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. If you say so, Captain Furnick. They're now within firing range, Captain. Mr. Smithers, send them a... Hang on, let me do this myself. Send them a warning shot off of their port bow. Fire cannons, I sir! That was merely a warning shot, Captain. They could have very well have hit us. I think they wished for us to surrender to avoid bloodshed. Nonsense! You think we would surrender in an hour of triumph? God has clearly stated that no weapon formed against you will prosper. We can't lose. Let loose the cannons. But but we're not within silence. If I wanted your opinion, I'd have given it to you. I say, fire! I've never seen a warning shot where they used all their cannons before. The blasted fool shot before he was in range. I can only assume that he means to not surrender. Quickly fire a barrage into the port side while they reload. Aye, aye, sir. Fire the cannons! Ha! You call that an attack? I have God on my side. He said this to me. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. Why why aren't we firing our cannons? 
We've now lost half our cannons due to the last attack! Come on, men! We can't lose! Aye, aye, sir! Are they even trying anymore? By all accounts, I believe they are. Let's pull up alongside and see if we can't reason with them. It would be bad form to slaughter them without mercy. Hello, over there! Go away! We have nothing to say to you! I wanted to negotiate the terms of your surrender. My surrender? It is you who will be surrendering to us. What on earth is he talking about, Captain? Maybe he's suffering from malnutrition and heat stroke? No, I, I think he's serious. Now look here. You're outgunned with no way of winning. We wish to show you mercy. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Why is he quoting the Bible? No, a quote would require a context. What he's done is called proof texting. Enough talk, men. Ready? Aim. What was that? I couldn't hear you over the sound of your mass being demolished. But, but, uh, no! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Oh, would you look at that? Your rudder is gone, too. <clears throat> It'll be a little difficult for you to sail without it, don't you think? I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Is it me? Or is your ship now sinking? Nah, maybe it is me. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If it's all the same to you, I think we've lost this fight. I'm surrendering. Geronimo! Satan is with you. I can't take another minute with this lunatic. Stop it! Stop it right now! All of you come back. We, we, we can't lose. We have... God on our side. We shall prevail. We will. Well, that was surprisingly easy. Makes me wonder how they were even viewed as a threat in the first place. Most inept sailors to ever sail the seven seas. more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. No, 
we're back. Warning, uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your favorite prophecy person and favorite televangelist. And this is a good thing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, about the cost of a couple of cups of coffee at Starbucks every month. And, uh, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. I've got 90,000 pounds. Time for a money-grabbing televangelist update. French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira. Now the Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money, you can make a splash. Quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, money, money. Everyone must anger for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You round. can keep your Marx's ways, but it's only just a phase. For it's money, 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 money makes the world go round. Money, 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 money. money. I just love Monty Python. Anyway, okay, so uh, what we're going to be listening to is audio from uh, the, uh, I think this is the 2013 Woman Thou Art Loose, but it only recently uh, broadcast on uh, the Potter's House uh, uh, for their television program on airs on Trinity Broadcasting Network. And so what we're going to be listening to is uh, T.D. Jakes preaching about I don't know what. I, that's the only way I could put it. I'm not sure what it is he's talking about, um, but he's <laughs> talking about being in trans. If clearly, I, this is not a biblical teaching, but of course, Bishop Bishop T D Jakes. I mean, he's one of the most popular guys in the evangelical industrial complex. I mean, you know, this is a man who's supposed to be the one of the greatest preachers that America has ever produced. I would say he's one of the greatest heretics that speaks utter gibberish that, uh, well, evangelicalism has ever produced. Here's T.D. Jakes from Woman Thou Art Loosed. Here we go. Women about birth, they immediately think about being mothers, but I didn't come to talk to you as mothers. Okay, so we're talking about birth, and you're not going to talk to them as mothers. But you're going to talk about birth. This is not a good setup. I came to talk to you as babies. Who have outgrown the parameters of the womb that you live in. (laughs) Why is anybody with like two or three brain cells putting up with this? Yeah, listen, um, uh, uh, Mr. Jakes, um, I, I haven't lived in a womb 
in a really long time, you know, like 46 years, 46 and a half years. Um, yeah. So for you to be talking to these women, you know, who clearly are not in anybody's womb as if they're living in a womb. Whew, yeah, this isn't, it, this is not powerful. This is just pathetic. I came to talk to you as living creatures who have found restrictions in the place that you once found nurture and nourishment and found yourself in prison by narrow thinking people and Oh yeah, imprisoned by narrow thinking people. Oh yeah, I mean you'll never break out of that. I mean yeah, that's worse than Fort Knox, you know, or what what's the name of a famous prison? San Quentin, yeah, oh yeah, it's way way worse than that. Thinking circumstances and narrow evolving predicaments, I came to tell you that you cannot feed in one realm and stay in that realm. That if you get enough on the inside of you, you will find a discomfort in staying in the dimension that you once lived in. And I came. Mm, yeah, d- dimensional discomfort. <sighs> Definitely. That's, that's, that's a terrible thing. There's a lot of people out there suffering from dimensional discomfort because, you know, the because the, of the constrictions in the womb they're living in from the narrow-minded people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Prepare your hearts and minds. If, if, if you're not prepared to go through some bloody stuff and some dirty stuff and some stinky stuff, you don't want to keep feeding on this kind of word because if you feed on this kind of word, it will open up your mind and open up your thinking and open up your ideas and open up your concepts until all of a sudden you are uncomfortable in what you were once comfortable in. Why are they applauding? You know, if you were to take his words, transcribe them, and then put them into outline format, do you think you can actually connect any lucid thoughts? You know, this is this is gibberish. This is utter nonsense. And these women paid to go to hear this. Some of you have already begun to experience it. You're thinking on another level and it's, it's causing a separation. Some of you have already begun to experience it because what used to be funny isn't funny anymore. And what you used to enjoy, you don't enjoy anymore. And what you used to be satisfied with, you're not satisfied with anymore. And all of a sudden you don't fit in the places you used to fit in. And you don't even- Yeah, I don't fit in some of the clothes I used to fit in, but yeah. yeah. Kind of a perennial thing for me, you know, continue to try to, in my quest to become half the man I used to be. But I don't think that's what he's talking about, though. And, and they think you're acting funny, and they think you're acting strange, and they say things like, you forgot where you came from. I didn't forget it, I just can't stay in it. I can't. Uh, again, did I miss something here? Why are people applauding? This isn't biblical. This is nonsense. He's not even speaking, you know, anything into these people's lives that makes any sense. Maybe it's his um, his delivery. I mean, you got to admit. I mean, as far as his delivery skills. Few people even come close to T.D. Jakes. He's an amazing orator. I mean, and it's kind of he's kind of proven here. It, it, as long as he employs his 
oratory skills. It doesn't matter what he's saying because he's not saying anything that even makes any sense. Ah, yeah, people are going to suck it up because of his great delivery. Tweet that. Tweet that. I got to get out of here. 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 I've got to get out of here. You tell your twin you can stay in there if you want to. This- now I have a twin in the womb that I'm in that's being constricted by the negative hater people. Oh, man. I didn't even know I had a twin be okay for you but i got to get out of here even if i have to fight my way out like jacob and esau i've got to get out there if i've got to pull and tug i've got to get out i've got too much vision to stay in this rut (laughs) got too much vision all right In this hole, in this roughage, in this barren place, I've grown it. I've outthought it. I've outlived it. I have realized that this is not the world. It is only a world. I submit to you that, that, that birth and death are the wonder twins of divinity. Uh-huh. Okay. Have you been taking, um, you know, logic courses from Michael Chitwood? That in scope, one is no different from the other. That in reality, God says that we should cry when they are born and rejoice when they die because God understands that birth and death are labors together with him to push you from one world. You'll get it when you get home. Just keep thinking on it. Just, just, just the baby dies out to the world it's in. Uh, what baby again? You said I was the baby, you know, just a minute ago. So I'm dying out to the world I'm in. Can't live. Death in the scriptures is separation. <laughs> the baby is separated from the world it lives in. Push. Oh, yeah. That poor baby, man. Out of it. Gone. Gone from the world it lived in. To, to, to be absent over here is to be present. Over there, you can't... Yeah, I don't understand what that biblical text has to do with the being in a constricted womb kind of place where I've got to give, you know, i got to get birthed again. Yeah, yeah, that's just, that's, that has nothing to do with it, you know? Here and there. You, you can't be there and here. If, if you're going to go there, you can't stay here. So the moment the baby shows up here, he's absent there. Uh, what? And Beth stands over in the corner and says, same thing. He does, does he? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think he has been taking logic lessons from Michael Chitwood. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. So, Berth stands over there and says, I am transportation into the next dimension. And Death stands over here and says, so am I. 
What? But the text is not talking about the birth over here or the birth over there, but the many births that happen in between. What text is talking about many births between? Which, which Bible verse were you talking about? Stay with me. Okay. <laughs> sure, I'll stick around. I mean, but uh, so far, yeah, I haven't heard any thoughts that make any sense. Galatians says, my little children in whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. And yeah, that's uh, due to the fact that they had bought into the uh, Judaizing heresy. Yes, Christians often use the term born again. Yeah, or born from above, yeah. We should say born again, again, and again. And again. So when Jesus was saying that unless somebody is born again or born from above, that they have to be born again, 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 again. Yeah, let's take a look at that text. I mean, I, I'd kind of like to see that. Let's see if this actually works. Okay, uh, John chapter 3, verse 1. John chapter 3, verse 1. This is the famous Nick at Night text. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered to him, Amen, 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 Amen. Truly I say to you, unless one is born anothen, yeah, that means it could either be born again or born from above. See, that's the thing. I think Jesus is perfect. He's using this word in a way that, you know, Nick kind of misses it. So, unless one is born anothen, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Yeah, so, do you think Jesus here was saying that, okay, unless you're born again and again and again and again and again, and the birth he's talking about is, you know, being birthed into the the bigger thing because you've outgrown the womb that you're in. You think that's what Jesus was talking about? I don't think that's what he's talking about. Anyway, so, uh, truly I say to you, unless one is born anothen, born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, Nick says, uh, well, how can a man be born when he's old? So Nicodemus is thinking born again, you know, like born earthly like a, can he enter a second woman, uh, second time into his mother's womb? Well, see, there we go. I mean, born again here, Nicodemus got it wrong because he's thinking, you know, hey, we're going into a womb and, and you can't do that again. And if, well, isn't it weird because, you know, <clears throat> T.D. Jake's here, he's talking about wombage, you know, and being stuck in a womb and being constricted in a tight little womb kind of thing. Anyway, so, uh, you know, so Jesus answered, Amen, Amen. And I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, oh, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born anothen, again, from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, yeah, I don't think Jesus here is talking about, you know, constricted womage and, you know, and small-minded thinkers and things like that, and then saying you need to be born again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Because if you look back over your life, every so often... Every so often, 
every so many days or situations or circumstances, you find yourself in a world that's too small and too tight and too limited and you have to go through a birthing process from one dimension to get into the next dimension and, and you are being... What are you even talking about? Which dimensions are the fifth dimension? What, what dimension? Yeah, this is demented. Again and again, you get comfortable, and as soon as you settle all in and say, "Now I got my life all nice and neat, and I finally got it just the way I want it," and oh, I've arrived and I've reached my destination, and then you look around and the water breaks in the situation. And- <laughs> oh, that's gotta be embarrassing. Yeah, here I am, all comfortable in the current dimension that I am, and then my water breaks. Oh, man. Yeah. And I have to clean the carpet. World begins to lurch, and all of a sudden you have to recreate yourself and find yourself starting all over again. You were sure yourself over here, but now you're a student again over there. You knew how to do this, but now you're learning again how to do that, and you are born again. And if you look at this text literally. So that's what it means to be born again, huh? Yeah, I don't think so. That's not what Jesus was talking about there in John chapter 3. Like, not even close. You lose the power of the text altogether. Yeah, you've lost the power of the text because you ain't even preaching and exegeting the text, and what you're telling him has nothing to do with what the text actually says. Because Ezekiel isn't really talking to us about birth. Ezekiel's now talking, not talking to us about birth. What's he talking about? Oh, he's talking to us about the trauma of transition. Uh, Ezekiel talked about the trauma of transition? Really? The trauma of transition. The absolute trauma of transition. Not the trauma of the mother. The trauma on the traveler who dares to transition to the next dimension. Can I go deeper? (laughs) Deeper into bovine scatology? What is this nonsense? This child gives me an illustration that, that is symbolic of an experience I had when I was in Kenya, in the bush, out in Kenya, as the women began to talk to us about giving birth in the desert, in the, in the dry sand. It was inconceivable to me to give birth with, without nurses and waiting rooms and, and, and music and, and machines and, 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 and needles and stethoscopes and, 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 and all of it. They said, no, we, 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 we have our babies out here in the dirt, in the sand, in the heat. I said, oh, God. (laughs) What does this have to do with anybody there at the woman thou art loosed? In perilous environments, traumatic circumstances, we give birth wherever the water breaks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. 
time has come, my little friends, to talk of other things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax and cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. Kalukalay, come run away. We're cabbages and kings. Yeah, that was a wow. Um, <laughs> were any of you taking notes? Uh, could you outline that for me? Could you let me know what any of that meant? Because, um, yeah, it had nothing to do with what any biblical text actually says. And yet, oh yeah, yeah T.D. Jakes. I mean, this is uh, one of America's most important preachers, you know. A guy who is, you know, out there, you know, you know, expanding the kingdom of God, megachurch pastor, best-selling author. He's a wolf. That's what he is. Because you know who he, he ain't preaching? He ain't preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins. He's filling these women's head with utter, complete gobbledygook and nonsense. None of it is what God's word says. And, uh, you know, that's how the devil operates. Wolf in sheep's clothing. Very expensive sheep's clothing, if you know what I mean. All right. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to head down to Church by the Glades and listen to a sermon by uh, David Hughes. And by the way, I think he's aware of the fact that his uh, young understudy is guilty of plagiarism. You'll feel that too. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey, have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. 
heading back down to Church by the Glades. We're not going to hear Pastor Corey today. We're going to hear David Hughes. And I think he's going to preach about as much Bible as uh, Joel Osteen does during his normal sermons. Yeah, that bad. Let's do this right. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Church by the Glades out there in Florida. They're a multi-site. David Hughes presiding. The name of the sermon series is entitled Foodies. A word I was totally unfamiliar with until, like, yesterday. Anyway, yes, I'm clearly not up to speed on these things. The, uh, the, the name of the sermon that we're going to be listening to is entitled Dealing with Critics. Now, this is a weird sermon title, don't you think? I mean, you know, w- w- when did it become the job of a pastor to help people, well, deal with the critics in their lives? <laughs> what biblical text can we go to to uh, help us in coping with our critics and dealing with our critics? Well, what you're going to hear here is uh, this is the standard re- affirming messages that you hear from seeker-driven guys in order to kind of shore up the uh, you know the masses there at the seeker-driven venues you know because they're well what they're doing there isn't biblical and uh, a lot of people end up leaving the church because they say they're not being fed well what do you do to keep people from doing that well here's what you do you teach them that they're selfish if they want to be taught doctrine that's what david hughes is about to do fascinating though but we'll ask the question and answer the question uh for whom do pastors exist for whom do pastors exist and note again how much bible david hughes uses in this sermon so let me go ahead and back off the music and without any further ado here's david hughes from his sermon series entitled foodies and the sermon entitled dealing with critics here we go hey guys what's up church by the glades good seeing you all right got a question got a question ready who got wet on the way to church? Be proud. Oh, bonus points, man. God loves soggy saints. Awesome you're here. You're a wet Christian. That's good. If you're here and you're not here with us, typically, welcome. I'm David. I'm one of the pastors. And we're in a series, a theme that we're calling foodies. And we're actually checking out some of the really interesting food metaphors in the Bible. And this series, in my opinion, is going to be a lot of fun because it's about three things I enjoy. Jesus, His Word... And food, and food, and food. Those are, those are three. The first two are amazing, but that last one's not bad either. We like food around here at Church by the Glades. I am not an authentic foodie, but I do like some food. So we're going to have a good time today, and uh, so we'll do foodie for a few more weeks. And then we have the December series. It's going to land on Christmas week called X. We're just getting the word out on X. Trust us, it's going to be extremely exciting as you are part of the X experience for us. And uh, one way you want you guys to help us get out the word. The X experience? What does that mean? have these shirts available. Uh, you guys do a great job, Church by the Glades family, buying these shirts, wearing these shirts. But the only person that has this shirt is Vanessa. The only person. I don't have a shirt, Vanessa. 
Uh, we've ordered a whole bunch because we really think the release is going to be big. Maybe next week, probably not. Maybe the week after that. So we're kind of keeping these shirts under wraps. We do have the invite cards, though. Please go out and invite people. Start the conversation. They say, what is X? You can say, I don't know. But my church typically has an amazing Christmas. So, uh, And then we'll have the T-shirts available in a week or two. It's kind of like you know the, the iPhone 6. Pre-release here. Pre-release, okay? So she has one. Oh, I have one here. Anybody want a shirt? Anybody want a shirt? This is a very rare... Again, again, oh, oh, it pays it down front, man. Sit down front, sorry. All right, let's cop into the, the foodie series. If you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, come on loudly. John chapter John chapter 6, okay. Find just two, two chapters to the left. And then I promised you last week, if you came back this week, I was going to wrestle to the ground. In the days in between, one of the great theological debates, one of the great doctrinal questions of our age. What are the five best burgers in South Florida? What are the five best burgers? Any burger fans? Cheeseburger fans? All right, all right, me too, man. I try to watch my diet, eat clean, but I love a good cheeseburger. And I think I'm uniquely qualified to answer this question uh, of what are the best burgers. And by the way, you guys, you've been so fun. You hit me up on Twitter and on Instagram. Thank you for following those. Uh, I'm not looking for followers, per se. Follow Jesus. But a great way to get the word out to the church family in real time is Twitter and Instagram. So please follow the church if you will follow me just so I can communicate with you ministry opportunities and fun things we're doing and silly things like what is the best burger in South Florida. So here's the top five, top five irrefutable theological list of the best burgers in South Florida. Number five, La Tub down in Hollywood. La Tub down in Hollywood. You might have been there. You're mellow about it. It was, it was actually chosen by GQ magazine several years ago as the best burger in the U.S., it's good. I'm not sure it's that good. Very unique environment, La Tub in Hollywood. Number four, Charm City. Charm City over in Pompano Beach. Very good place. Good creative burgers. It's kind of a small place. Got to get in there quickly. Uh, number three, new kid on the block, Tucker Dukes. You are the mellowest burger crowd yet. You people are not passionate about your burgers. Come on, Tucker Dukes. Uh, number two, kind of a new place. But if you've not been to Shake Shack... Shake Shack, they you know they were, they were first in um, in uh, Coral Gables and then on South Beach, but now I got one in Boca. Shake Shack, oh, their their double cheeseburger is a worship experience. Brings tears to my eye. It is so good. And then before I give you the number one all time best burger in South Florida, this is typically the time on surveys they give you. And also not quite making the list, but very good. There's a lot of good burgers in South Florida. Man, I like Burger Five, Smash Burger, Wayback Burger. Five Guys, Five Guys French Fries, actually better. Char Hut is a very good burger. But the number one best burger in all of South Florida has to go to Jack's on the east side of town. Jack's old school, man, just a plain. So what exactly does this thing, what's its function in a sermon? The job of a sermon, well, the job of a pastor in a sermon is to preach the word. All of South Florida has to go to Jack's on the east side of town. Jack's old school Man, just a plain good. If you've not been to Jack's, go to Jack's. Cheat on your diet one day and get yourself some Jack's. All right, let's go ahead and jump to the study. Uh, if you missed last week, we are kind of drilling down on some of the food metaphors. You stay in John, but in Hebrews chapter 5, the author says that the scripture or doctrine is strong meat. The Word of God is... Yeah, doctrine is that. Yeah, that's right. Scripture does say that, which is kind of weird because what you're going to say in just a few minutes is 
rather fascinating in light of what you're saying right now. Devour here the divine meat, the spiritual protein to develop the God sinew and muscle of your life is the Word of God. So our church focuses on teaching Scripture, so the Bible self-defines as the meat. Then in John chapter 6, Jesus made a little statement right here on the screen right now, where Jesus just simply and concisely said, He said, I am the I am the bread of life. I know low-carbohydrate diets are very in vogue right now, but at Church by the Glades, we're all about the carbs, all about the carbs. We're very, very carb-friendly. And Jesus says, I am the cosmic carbohydrate I am the bread of life. In the same way, carbohydrate... You're going to get one verse out of John chapter 6 and just make the claim that, oh, you're all about preaching the word. Well, why aren't you actually taking the time to, you know, read the text? I mean, John chapter 6 is a very important text, doctrinally, theologically. Just finding one verse and then saying, hey, look... You know, I'm the Jesus is the cosmic carbohydrate is far from actually doing the text justice. And let's take a look at it. I mean, you know, do a little biblical study here. Let's you know let's find out what we can find in John chapter six. I don't know why these seeker-driven guys have no time whatsoever in an hour-long sermon to you know to actually open the Bible. It's the weirdest thing. Anyway, John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on sick. Jesus went up on the mountainside, and there he sat down with his disciples. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, "'Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat?' He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Well, two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. They gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the prophet that Moses foresaw. This is the one that Moses said you got to listen to. So the people have correctly identified who Jesus is in a sense. Uh, you know, They understand that he's the prophet, which makes him the Messiah. So perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, make Jesus king, Jesus withdrew again. Uh, to the mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea became rough because of a strong wind that was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered that, the, the boat 
uh, with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. The other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where did when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, Well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work, singular work, of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Well, then, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Amen, amen. I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst, or shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Notice Jesus here is saying about these people that they don't actually believe in him. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and then I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Amen, amen. I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews disputed among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Amen, Amen. Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father whoever feeds on me. 
he also will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who, who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father who grant, unless it is granted to him by the Father. And after this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back, and they no longer walked with Jesus. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So, yeah, this uh, bread of life talk that Jesus gives in John 6, what's it result in? Well, well, this is the text that a lot of guys like to refer to as Jesus' church shrinkage sermon. No sooner does he preach this, that his, you know, the number of people who follow him shrinks dramatically. But all we get from David Hughes is one verse so far. One verse, I'm the bread of life, and now he's declared Jesus the cosmic carbohydrate. Yeah, there's some in-depth exegetical work, don't you think? Very, very carb-friendly. And Jesus says, I am the cosmic carbohydrate. I am the bread of life. In the same way carbohydrates provide energy, Christ will energize your spiritual life, your eternal life, your relational life. Christ will energize you. <sighs> the meat. So if Jesus is the bread and the scripture is the meat, the church is like a restaurant. The church should be like a righteous restaurant serving up the bread and the meat, the scripture and the Lord. Now, this is where he launches off. Now, notice this little table analogy that he's about to give. He, uh, well, he's used it in the past. Um, Our good friend Ed Young has used it quite extensively in the past. And so has Mark Beeson from Granger, another purpose-driven, seeker-driven church. And this analogy, by the way, not found in Scripture. And so we've gotten, well, we've received one verse so far from David Hughes. One verse. And uh, Jesus is the cosmic carbohydrate. Okay. And then you could think of it this way. Um, I like this prop right here. You could think of the church as a, a biblically balanced, tremendous table. All right, think about the church like a table. Actually, it's a biblical metaphor you see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, how how God leverages tables. But if we are serving up the bread of life, which is... Yeah, I'm sure there's metaphors in the Bible about tables. Can you show me how uh, the Old Testament or even the New Testament uses a table metaphor to describe the job of a pastor in this way? Because it doesn't. All right, there are four chairs around this table, which represents the church, a biblically balanced church. One chair is my chair. It's the chair for the teacher or the preacher. And anytime you come to an environment where we worship or gather church by the glades, someone will take the time and the trouble to teach the Word of God. Uh, It's an important responsibility. We try to serve up the meat and the bread in a very powerful and compelling way. So this chair is the chair for the teacher and the preacher. Now... 
I'm feeling kind of lonely at my table. I want some friends. I got some friends right here. My friends are going to come join me at this table. I'm kind of lonely right here. Got Stan, Daryl Ann, Pastor Tom. Daryl Ann, sit right there. Because, Daryl Ann, you're in a very, very special chair. This is the, the chair of great honor. Chair number one. Daryl Ann, you represent somebody who should be with us anytime we gather up, especially in a large group setting. Uh, chair number one is a, a chair for a, a non-believer, a non-believer. And uh, anytime we gather up like this weekend, there are probably thousands of people with us right now who are not yet Christians. You've not yet stepped across the line of faith. And hear this. We are thrilled that you're here. We honor this chair. Wow. We pray for you. Think about you. We try to make church a very safe and compelling experience for you. I want you to come and ask your God questions. And I think you're doing a brilliant thing. You're checking out the greatest question there is. Is there a God? Did he make me? Does he love me? Is Jesus who the Bible says he is? So this is a safe place to sit in this chair. We esteem and value, Daryl and people who are non-believers with us at Church by the Glace. So chair number one is a non-believer. Now, just a reminder, this is a sermon, and he's doing shop talk right now. This is a message designed to reinforce the seeker-driven ecclesiology and their methods um, to basically silence critics who might, you know, like open up their Bible and say, wait a second, something's wrong with this church. They're not doing what God's Word says to do. So they came up with this table metaphor, said that it has something loosely to do with uh, table metaphors of the Old Testament. And, uh, and again, this is a, you know, a, you know in, in internal seeker-driven message that has to be reinforced and reinforced in order to silence biblically discerning Christians who are haters and critics, apparently. But uh, we continue is a non-believer. Back here, I got Stan. Stan, you were in uh, chair number two, chair number two. Chair number two, it's a fun, exciting chair. This is someone who, who was a non-believer, but just recently stepped over the line of faith. And chair number two is a, wow, bam, a new believer. You're someone who's just recently stepped across the line of faith and been beautifully, wonderfully, and radically saved by Jesus. Been all kinds of great things are yours when you choose Christ. But you're a, you're a new believer. You're kind of fresh in your faith. Uh, some people call you a baby Christian. Now, I got a question for you. Where in the Bible does it say that pastors are to tailor make their messages, you know, so that they uh, are well-balanced meals that... Uh, that are tailor-made for non-believers, recent converts, and then, you know, mature Christians, because he's going to talk about those. The job of a pastor is to preach the Word. If somebody is, a, is an unbeliever, they're not a Christian, and they want to come to church, they're welcome to come and hear the Word. The job of the pastors to preach the Word. If somebody is a new believer, they've been brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins— um, and you know they're you know they ha- maybe they haven't been baptized yet, or maybe they're in a in a class to uh, you know to ramp up and be baptized, things like that. Um, you know, should the pastor change up his message for those people? No. What do they need to hear? They need to hear the word. The job of a pastor is to preach the word. How about mature believers? Well, you know what you know, the the pastor should do. He should well preach the word. You see. When the job is doing it, his when the not when, not when the job when the pastor is doing his job of preaching the word, which is what scripture tells him to do, um, you know, God's word is appropriate for all audiences to hear. Unbelievers, new converts, those who've been in the faith all their life, yeah, you, you preach the word. You, you see what I'm saying? But see, 
what he's trying to do is set this scenario up as a means of saying, hey, listen, what we're doing is we're trying to, you know, we're trying to do our church in a way we're meeting all the different needs of all the, you know, these different types of people. And, and, and that's why, you know, we, we, uh, you know, we talk about food and we do hashtag in Twitter during church and why we have our, our, our worship, uh, band uh sing you know secular cover tunes and we have talent nights and you know in yeah you get what i'm saying here see what he's trying to do is justify the biblically unjustifiable with this metaphor and he's going to go after the critics those who are biblically discerning who will say wait a second this isn't the pastor uses isn't doing what god's word tells him to do but we'll get to that in a minute. Let's keep listening. Use Christ. But you're a, you're a new believer. You're kind of fresh in your faith. Uh, some people call you a baby Christian. I think that's fun because babies, young people are passionate. And I love babies because they're hungry. I mean, Stan works in our kids' ministry, but the little kids, Stan, babies want to eat all the time. And some of you new believers, you are so hungry for God's word. You're so hungry for Christ and, and relationship with him. I love the passion and the hunger of new believers, baby believers. Now, babies are kind of messy, but we all do. We're all imperfect people. But I love a church by the glades. The passion, they inspire me, of new believers in the house. So so chair number one, non-believer. Chair number two, Stan, Stan, you're pretending to be a new believer. You're not one, but you're pretending for us today. All right, Stan actually works with some of the kids here at our church. And then we have some of, well, chair number three people. Chair number three, I love chair number three. Pastor Tom's going to represent that you are this kind of person. Uh, chair number three is a maturing believer, maturing believer. Uh, people have been following Christ, Tom, not just for a, a few months, but for years, a season. You've followed Christ for decades. I didn't say mature. I don't think we ever get to the point that we can say, well, I'm fully spiritually mature. But you have been growing by God's grace. Uh, you're practicing what it says to do in the Word. Not just learning the blessings in the doing of what God says. And by the way, mature believers like Tom, they help feed other people. They help care for other people at the table. They, they invite, engage. You know, we always want to bring people sitting in that number one chair. Jesus always invited and engaged non-believers to follow him. We love it when people step across the line of faith, become new believers. But man, the maturing believers, solid saints, uh, not perfect, but practicing what the Bible says to do, unselfish serving at the table. I think, guys, the table is a great metaphor for what the biblically balanced church should be. Because when we're all here and all four chairs are filled with people we value, the church becomes, well, not just balanced, it becomes a a beautiful spiritual ecosystem. I hope our church is like a table. And then there's this chair. This chair. Sadly, many churches, is a spiritual phenomenon of people who actually present as mature believers. Perhaps they've been saved for a long time, might have a position of influence in the church, but they're really not authentically mature. They are Yeah, they're not authentically mature because they oppose the methods of the seeker-driven movement. Yeah, that's who he's talking about. They're not really mature. They're actually big, fat, spiritual babies, and they sit in this chair. And in the church, this is not the high chair. It's the I chair. Because when I'm all about me and my stuff, I'm not really mature. But sadly, a lot of churches are dysfunctional, they're political, they're broken, they're themselves centric because people in leadership, Christians for a long time, pseudo mature believers, baby, fat baby Christians, say things like, 
I liked things better back in the day. Yeah, back in the day, you know, when <laughs> pastors actually preached the word. You know, mature believers, baby, fat baby Christians say things like, I liked things better back in the day. I want you to feed me. I want more doctrine. I want more worship. I want more programs for me and mine. I miss where I could park my car back when the church was small. Wah, wah, wah. Me, me, my, my, my. Big, fat, spiritual babies. All right. So you're a big, fat, selfish, spiritual baby if, you know, you want doctrine. You want worship instead of secular cover songs. Yeah, it's time to revisit something I wrote a while ago, and I think it's worth revisiting from time to time. Here's the question. For whom do pastors exist? For whom do pastors exist? Do pastors exist for unbelievers? Who do they exist for? Anyway, uh, let's take a look at what Scripture says. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit gives different gifts to different believers for the building up of the body of Christ. I would point you to, you know, like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. Now, teaching is one of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to pastors, and this gift is to be used specifically, according to Scripture, for believers. Ephesians 4, 8 through 13 states this very clearly. Here's what it says. In saying that he, Jesus, ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, those would be pastors, and teachers. Why? to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God. Uh Uh-huh. So the reason why Christ has given us shepherds, pastors, is to equip the saints and build up the body of Christ. That's their job. In clear and unambiguous language, God states that shepherds, pastors, and teachers in the church exist to equip the saints, not unbelievers, and to build up the body of Christ, not the world. This is, the, this is clear and irrefutable. Those who have the gift to teach are commanded to feed Christ's sheep by teaching the word of God. The duties of the shepherds and teachers within the church are governed by the instructions given by Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at John chapter 21. Now, this is Peter being reinstated into ministry. Here's what it says. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said this to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Notice that in this passage, Jesus doesn't tell Peter to entertain goats or dazzle the world. Instead, Jesus soberly and firmly reinstates Peter after he denied Jesus three times, and Peter was reinstated into ministry, and that ministry was to shepherd and feed Christ's sheep. These commands by Jesus to Peter stuck with him his entire life. Peter himself would later exhort elders who are pastors with these words, 
So I exhort you, this is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This shepherding language is also used by the Apostle Paul when he addresses the elders of the church of Ephesus. Here's Paul's words of exhortation. Acts chapter 20, 28 through 31. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, drawing away the disciples after themselves. Now it's clear from these passages that pastors are not literal shepherds and that Christians are not literal sheep. All of these images are metaphors that help create a mental picture of the difficult and sacrificial work of pastors. So when Jesus told Peter to feed my sheep, what was Jesus referring to? What does a pastor shepherd feed Christ's sheep with? The answer is simple, the word of God. And two passages will suffice in demonstrating this fact. Matthew chapter 4, 4, Jesus answered, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 4 says, But as for you, Pastor Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing that from whom you have learned it, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, no commentary is needed for these verses because they clearly teach that God's word is sheep food and that the pastors are to be feeding the scriptures to Christ's sheep. Yeah. So what we have going on here is um, Pastor David Hughes, who is supposed to be a pastor. Who does he exist for according to Scripture? He exists for the sheep, for the building up of Christ, and he has been commanded by God through the Scriptures to preach the Word. And if you're a little bit confused as to whether or not that includes doctrine, well, Scripture also makes that very clear in the other pastoral epistle, Titus. Titus chapter 1, Paul writes to uh, Pastor Titus, he says, This is why I left you in Crete. This is chapter five, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put remain in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable and a lover of the good, self-controlled, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those 
who contradict it. Whoops. We've got a problem here. What David Hughes is doing is trying to justify the unjustifiable. He is in direct violation of what God's word commands pastors to be doing. And what he's doing here is trying to keep bleeding from happening at his church. You know, a a dip in the numbers, if you would. And the way to do that is to make sure that all of those Christians out there who understand what the Bible says, that they are shamed and told that they are, well, selfish, babies, not really mature, because they say, we want more doctrine. Isn't the point of coming to church to hear the word? Oh, and we want more worship. We don't want these secular cover songs. We want to actually sing worship songs and hymns to God. Huh? But what does David Hughes say? Oh, you're selfish and immature. Who's right in this, God's word or David Hughes? I'd go with God's word on this, but we continue. I I didn't realize it because I've been a Christian maybe like 25 years. That might be me. Babies are selfish. If you're selfish, that's not spiritually mature. In fact, that's the antithesis of spiritual maturity. I love John the Baptist said, here, you want to be mature? Jesus must increase and I must decrease. What? Jesus must... How does Jesus increase in biblically shallow, vapid sermons like they preach there at Church by the Glades? How is... And how is it selfish to point out that you're not teaching sound doctrine? Hmm? I must increase. I must decrease. I must get small. You see, to be meistic is the antithesis of spiritual maturity. And if this is you, here's your move today. Ask for forgiveness, repent, and crawl out of the eye chair, right? So you need, if you want to, if you go to church with the expectation the pastor's supposed to preach doctrine and the church service is supposed to have worship, um, you need to repent. No, you don't. David Hughes needs to repent. What he's doing here is duplicitous and absolutely demonic, shaming discerning Christians who actually know what God's Word says regarding church and the job of the pastor. Turn to your neighbor and say, you might need to grow up. Turn to your neighbor and say, you may need to grow up and get out of the eye chair. Go ahead, do it. All right, so I didn't hurt myself hopping out of the eye chair today. Get out of the eye chair. So we got these chairs, this biblically balanced metaphor, the table. And, uh, and by the way, uh, some of you guys, you've been with me a long time here. And we've seen our church change, our church grow. God has blessed our church. In fact, if you've been here for a long time, you might recognize this is not the first time I put a table on the stage. I've done it before. In fact, I want to just be really honest and clear. This is not my original idea. The table is a very biblical idea. But the first pastor teacher I know who brought a table on the stage with four chairs was my good friend, Pastor Ed. So to be a good preacher, rip off another good preacher's ideas. You got eyes, plagiarize. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh- yeah, no, notice he's joking about this. I think the reason why he's uh, making it clear that he got this from David Hughes is because of the kerfuffle regarding Pastor Corey plagiarizing, literally plagiarizing uh, Perry Noble's sermon regarding money. Uh, I did it with Ed's permission. And so Ed did this the first time, but I, I went through my notes getting ready for this, this series and this, this talk called Foodie. And I, I found, I thought I'd done it once before. Actually, I did it twice before. The first time was back in 2000. 
I came to the church in 1998. Now, before that, we ran about 475 people in worship on a typical week, and that was our average. Uh, but by the time I got, you know, 2000, several years later, the church had grown. Uh, I taught the table idea, the foodie idea, and in the bulletin. Remember the old school church bulletins? I had a bulletin in my notes, and our church averaged in attendance about 800 people. So we had grown and God had blessed us. It was pretty good. Then I taught the whole idea of the table again in 2005. Anybody here with us in 2005? Anybody? Okay, not a lot of hands clapping. Tell you why? Because in 2005, we were running almost 2,000 people. That's, that's pretty good growth from 2000. But on a typical weekend here, when it's not raining, typical weekend here, we run between eight and 9,000 people by God's grace. Isn't that phenomenal? God has gr- so eight to nine thousand people show up every week to hear completely vapid, non-depth teaching regarding you know whatever you know life tips for making your life better, you know strip mining God's word and and not teaching sound doctrine. We've reviewed so many sermons from Church by the Glades. I would go back and listen to what we've reviewed here. How is it by God's grace that 8,000 people are attending a church where they're not actually being fed? And if you want to be fed sound doctrine and want some depth and some depth in your worship, well, then you're being accused of being um, selfish and immature. Grum his church. And so I thought it was time to have a conversation like this again, just to kind of keep a refresher for some and new information for others. Because, you know, if, if our church is a table... And God has blessed our table. I mean, this. ever have a lot of guests come to your house, you have to bring in some extra chairs, put the leaves in the table. We're getting a bigger and bigger table by God's grace. Uh, if the church were a business, and by the way, the church is not a business. The church is a body. But if the church was a business, business has been good. Uh, if we were a restaurant, we are a busy restaurant. I mean, all this, by the way, all the glory, all the credit for the church growing goes to Jesus. All praise and glory, and you need to clap loudly there in this house, goes to our great king. In fact, Jesus claims this for himself with clarity in Matthew 16. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. So I'm the one building the church. So all the credit clearly goes to Christ. Yeah, well, that would also assume that you're preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins and teaching what's in accord with sound doctrine. But like I've pointed out, we've demonstrated over the years that that's not what happens at Church by the Glades. But reflecting over the years, I've been here a decade and a half now, a little longer. I was thinking back, as God has grown our table, there are certain decisions we've made. Certain values we have esteemed. Certain priorities we've established and then protected. And I think God has blessed these values, these decisions, and these priorities. In fact, I was thinking, these are not just priorities and values that are... are you know, relevant for the church. I think for any person in many endeavors of life, these same values would translate to you. If there's some area of your life, maybe your professional life or your academic life, you'd like to see God's favor, God's blessing, God progress you, advance you. I think these same things that God has blessed here to enlarge our table, God might use to enlarge your success, your achievement, even your relationships. So this is a series I've done before, but this is a brand new talk. Never done this talk before. And I spent some time the last couple of weeks just writing down some of the things that we've done here over the years at Church by the Glades as God has blessed this church and prospered this church. And these things might be things if you do in your own life, God will leverage and he will bless. 
So take a few notes of you all. I want to show you like six, seven things really, really quickly. Quick survey. Some of the things we've done at church that God has blessed. When I started thinking about and praying through this idea. That so he's not going to preach. This is the foodies sermon series, but he's not going to actually preach on on John chapter 6. Weird, huh? The first word that came to mind was the word vision. The word vision or the word. Uh, what? Word calling. When I say three, all campuses loudly say the word vision. One, two, three. Vision is vital, and calling brings clarity. How important is vision? In Proverbs 29, 18, it says this in the Bible. Guys, give me that verse on the screen, if you will. Ready? It says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Yeah, notice, uh, apparently God is the one building his church, yet he's twisting God's word. Proverbs 29, 18. We've talked about this many times here at Fighting for the Faith. That's half a verse that he just quoted. Half. Uh And here's what it says in the ESV. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. In other words, the prophetic vision that uh, this passage is referring to is not some vision that God's going to give you for your life. It's the written word of God. I mean, vision's a vital spiritual commodity. So when I came to our church, you know, years ago, uh, we'd kind of lost our vision. We had a lot of programming, a lot of activity, a lot of ministries, but they were muddy. They weren't reaching people. The church was declining, not growing. And so we stopped and began to study some of the most meaty statements in the Scripture about the church and wanted to redefine our vision or be clear about God's calling. Because God places a vision for a church, a church family, a calling upon a church. God calls individuals. I'm so excited that that 16 years ago this month, God called me to love and lead Church by the Glades as one of the pastors. What what a great thing. I'm a called person. And when you discover and you walk in God's calling. Real quick, where does it say that God gives a unique vision for churches, individual churches? Yeah, he said that and I had to... Catch up my brain here. Nowhere in Scripture does it actually say that. He's making that up. It brings confidence to your life. I mean, you walk with spiritual swagger, not not confidence in yourself, confidence in God and His calling. And it's not confidence, it's really Godfidence. It's a very, very powerful thing. Now, someone's going, Well, David, of course, you're a called person, you're a pastor, and God calls pastors, and God calls missionaries, and God calls worship leaders and, and student workers, but I'm just a regular, ordinary Christian. I don't think there's such thing. I don't think there's such thing as a regular, ordinary Christian. Now, you may not be called to be a pastor or a missionary, but I believe there's an extraordinary calling that God wants to place upon your life. I think God calls pastors, but I believe God calls architects, and God calls attorneys, and God calls CEOs. Now, did you catch the important words that he's saying that uh, need to be um, highlighted? I think. I think. I Yeah, um, yeah. this idea of uh, preaching what you think is not what God has called any pastor to be doing. He needs to be preaching the Word. You're supposed to be preaching God's thoughts, not your thoughts. This is a big problem. CEOs, and God calls CPAs, and God calls MDs, and God calls school teachers, and God calls firefighters, and God calls policemen, and God calls uh, stay-at-home mothers, and God calls us not just professionally, he calls us relationally. 
If you're a married person, God's called you to be a husband or God's called you to be a wife. Be the best one that you can before the Lord. If you're a parent, you know, be the best parent you can. If you're a kid. And I don't, I'm not quibbling with this. I mean, there's, there's a concept in, in Scripture regarding vocation. Yeah, God puts us into vocations. I don't have a problem with that per se. It's just that he's kind of rolled it up into this purpose-driven vision thing. And that's not, Proverbs 29, 18 has nothing to do with vocation. Honor your father and mother that is your divine calling before God. I mean, when you begin to sense and discover that God has a unique, customized calling for your life, it's very, very powerful stuff. You are a called person. God has a vision for your life. Stop right now, all campuses. Turn- yeah, see, there, see, this is where it crosses the line. Yeah, no, say that God has some unique vision for your life. I, this is not what Scripture actually teaches. Turn to your neighbor, pick your neighbor, and say, hey, you're a called person. Turn to your neighbor and say, I didn't know it, but you are a called... Come on, let's do it, do it. You are a called person. God has a divine dream for your life. So there's a calling and call... God has a divine dream for your life. No, this is not what Proverbs 29, 18 says at all. Calling is very powerful. Now, the second word I wrote down, second word is this, innovation. When I say three, loudly say the word innovation. One, two, three. So vision and innovation... And which passage teaches the importance of these two things again? Because Proverbs 29 to 18 doesn't teach the importance of vision the way he just used it. I have found typically when you find God's calling, there's a co- I have found typically, not that I have read in God's word. I have found this is based upon what David Hughes's personal experience. Mingling of two things. Number one, God's values, God's eternal, unchanging Values. God values people. God values the kingdom. God values redemption. God values grace. God values compassion. So part of God's calling for your life will be to impact other people in Jesus' name. So if you're called to be an architect, man, design the best buildings and bridges you can. But guess what? Part of being in the marketplace is to be God's ambassador in that mission field. So here's what's going to happen. Part of what God calls you to do, the eternal things of God. At the same time, he'll typically commingle an innovation. Some way to take the eternal... So God will commingle in innovation? Again, which passage of Scripture says any of this? Meaty things of God and find a way to connect with your culture in a way that is relevant and contemporary and, and, and innovation. You look confused. Let me demonstrate by way of illustration uh, and, and a food illustration. Why don't you demonstrate by opening up your Bible and showing us where this is taught in God's Word? Isn't that your job, Pastor Hughes? Uh, if you came at one o'clock, we're doing this whole pig roast thing. David, are you saying you want us to come at one o'clock? Yes, if you possibly can. That helps the parking issues typically. So one o'clock, uh, and we're going to do this pig roast. And it's put on by Padrino's Cuban Food. They have several restaurants. And uh, Mario Padrino is part of our church. He's a lay pastor. Uh, his family kind of founded these restaurants back when they first came from Cuba in the 60s. And uh, and. and Anybody, you've been in Florida since like, I don't know, the 70s, 80s, anybody? All right, not a lot of us, you know, a lot of transition in Florida. Do you remember when you first discovered Cuban food? I I, I do, it was probably late 70s, early 80s, man, it it was good. I've never had anything like, I thought it'd be like Mexican food, kind of spicy, and it's not, it's more like Southern cooking. And I remember going to a Cuban restaurant, and uh, the food was phenomenal. Now, this may not be true all the time, but every Cuban restaurant I went to way back in the day, they all have the same kind of atmosphere, same atmosphere. I like a restaurant. I'm cool. I'm not this high-end kind of guy. I like a restaurant that has great food, but it's okay if it's kind of a hole in the wall. 
Anybody like a good dive like that? You like a good, all right, yeah. In fact, this week, once you hit me up on Instagram or Twitter, hashtag CB Glaze, give me your favorite dives in town. I want to know where it has good food, but they don't care much about the ambiance. Anyways, most Cuban restaurants I went to back in the day, the food was great, but decor was not a big deal. You, you'd sit down, and the place mat was like a paper map of the state of Florida, and the utensils came in like a little plastic bag, and it might be actually a styrofoam plate, but the food was so good you didn't care. My buddy Mario said that's exactly how his restaurant was originally, and, and the clientele was almost exclusively Cubans. Loved the food, didn't care much about the digs, didn't really matter. The food was so really, really good. In fact, he said his early menus were completely in Spanish for his first two restaurants in Hialeah and later in Hallandale. But as he thought through how to reach a multicultural community, not just Cubans, but non-Cubans, he thought, you know, let's change and freshen up the way we serve our food. Let's rethink the restaurant. Let's rethink the vibe. Let's rethink the way we serve it. Let's put the menu in Spanish and in English. Start reaching a whole new group of people. Now, guess what? The presentation had morphed, but the values, really good food, the recipes remained exactly the same. At Church by the Glaze, before I got here, you know what we served up? Jesus and his word. As long as this church has been around, it's been about Jesus and his word. It's been about... Yeah, no, actually, I have to challenge that. Really, if it was about Jesus and his word, you'd actually be preaching Jesus, and you'd be rightly handling his word, which would also require you to actually teach sound doctrine. But you don't. You twist God's word. And you're not preaching about Jesus now, are you? The meat and the bread. All I did when I came here said, look, we're not reaching some people. We have this diverse community. Can we never compromise on Jesus and his word? Let's find an innovative way to try to connect Jesus and his word with our community. Innovation. You don't compromise the values. You rethink the presentation. All right, so listen. Don't give up your values. But if you're not making progress in life, you're not succeeding, good night. In Jesus' name, try something new. Innovate. Innovation is a good thing. I wrote this down quickly. Talent. Talent, talent, or, or gifting is the biblical word. Vision, innovation, talent. Oh, okay. And where are we getting these from again? Where? What text are you preaching on? You've given us two verses. Jesus has said, I'm the bread of life, and you've given us half the verse of uh, Proverbs 29, 18. You left out the other half. Or talent or gifting. And simply said, when it really is God's calling on your life, not your dream, because a lot of our dreams tend to be what in America? Selfish dreams. Babies, babies are selfish. And selfishness makes nothing better. Did you hear me on that? Selfishness doesn't improve any scenario. There's not one relationship in your life you're thinking, if I were more selfish, this would be better. Yeah, there's no husband going, my marriage would be way better if I was a bigger selfish jerk, right? No, no husband's thinking that. No parent's thinking, if only my teenager would think more about themselves. Our family would have more harmony, right? In a church, selfishness doesn't make anything better. But and our, our, our dreams, our own selfish dreams are going to be kind of self-centered. But God's calling is always going to be about his kingdom and other people. And if it really is God's calling, he will supply sufficient talent and gifting to accomplish everything he calls you to do. So if it's God's calling on your life, he will equip you. He will give you the gifts. He will provide the right spiritual stuff. I am the poster boy for this. You know, God calls me now to, to, to teach and to preach. In high school, I was that guy with horrible stage fright. 
we were in high school in English class, and you had to do that, like that, memorize that Shakespearean sonnet and get up and say that. I, I was my, my only prayer was not to throw up on the front row because I had such horrific stage fright. I could not imagine ever speaking in front of people. And now it is a joy. Now it is a strength. Now it's a gift. Now it, you guys wish I would shut up quicker. I have no issue because gifting will always align with what God calls you to do. All right, this one, you guys, are kind of quiet. It's kind of gloomy and, and wet outside, but this one, I want you to say this one loudly. Work. work. Woo, work. In fact, applause, give him applause, the idea of work. Yeah, work, good old-fashioned. Some of you aren't applause. By the way, the name of the sermon is Dealing with Critics, right? Yeah, um, weird. Is he teaching them how to deal with critics? Applauding. You're too lazy to even applaud the idea of work. No, no, no. Work. The Bible values work, work, work. So most of we're not succeeding because we're not providing the sufficient sanctified sweat to secure our success. And God brought you here to hit you up with a good old-fashioned idea. The Bible honors work. Let me show you something Jesus says. If you're in, in, in John chapter 6, just backtrack to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus makes a state. And by- uh, another verse? Dude, do you just not have time to, you know, like read whole sections of scripture? Are you so busy that you can't do it? Or are you afraid that if you did that, you'd drive people away? A statement, by the way, it's a food metaphor. Jesus says, my food, come on louder. My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In Matthew 9, 37, about the church, he said, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the field. The word there for workers in Greek is the Greek word ergon. We get the English word energy from it. You can translate it to labor, to toil, to work, or to grind. Sometimes a win. You got Yeah, the workers are few thing. Yeah, um, that's actually talking about sending people out to preach the gospel. And uh, remember what I read in John six when I read practically the whole chapter uh, earlier during the sermon review. Uh, what must we be doing to do the work of God? The work of God is this: to believe in the one whom He has sent. I mean, I, yeah, I I understand that you you're trying to. T- give some tips and life tips and principles for these people to apply so they have something relevant to their lives and stuff like that. But again, are you so busy during your sermon you can't open up a Bible and, you know, actually read a passage in context, David? you to grind out the victory. Or look, X. I'm telling you guys about X. It's going to be fun. Come to X because X is going to be great. How can I say X is going to be great with confidence? Because I work with a team, a team here, they are called... They're innovative, they're talented, they're gifted, and they work their butts off. I have volunteers, hundreds if not thousands of volunteers here, crazy dedicated. I pulled on the property before the first service on Sunday, and Don's out there on the parking team without a jacket, without umbrella in the rain, helping me park my car. My goodness, thank you for the many of you who work serving the king. So I can say with confidence that, that, that X is going to be great because of work. I wrote down the word risk. Risk. When I say three, loudly say the word risk. One, two, three. Risk. I think if you want to be successful. If you want to be successful, you've got, you need vision and you've got to work. And you, 
need talent and you know all this this isn't a biblical sermon now is it because if it were you know he, and he said oh we're gonna, we with new innovations and new methods but we're gonna we're not gonna compromise you know we're all about Jesus in the word well if you were all about Jesus in the word how come you're not demonstrating that in your sermon you can't be too comfortable your driving value is Play it safe at all costs. You will sabotage your own success. Now, don't take a stupid risk. Don't do something dumb and blame that on God. Maybe I think I should leave the corporate world and uh, sell baseball cards out of the basement. Probably not the best God plan. But that calling of God will always have a nuance of risk. It will always feel a little unsafe. It will stretch you out of your comfort zone. Be unafraid. Risk. Uh, Listen, 2,600 of you a couple weeks ago made a pledge to tithe for 90 days. That is scary. Tithe. I'm going to give God the first 10% and live off 90% for 90 days. That's risky. The God math on that, man, but faith is risk. Faith is trusting. Faith is, is stepping out there into the unknown. Lord bless you for that. Well, you're saying, God, I trust you that 90% of my income will go further with your blessing than 100% without your blessing. Lord bless you for risking. And my guess is... Why would God bless people for financially supporting a church that doesn't preach Christ and doesn't rightly handle God's word? We've got stories in already. People say, man, God has resourced me, and here's this financial miracle I've already got. At the same time, there's somebody here thinking, okay, I've been doing this for now like two weeks, three weeks. I don't have a miracle. In fact, I had an extra bill. What's going on? Yeah, the enemy, the enemy's testing you. The enemy didn't want to see you walk in God's financial freedom. He didn't want to see your faith grow. I mean, he's going to mess with you. He wants to derail. Yeah, and by the way, tithe is an Old Testament thing. Um, Yeah, it's part of the Mosaic Covenant. We're not under that. Go back and listen to Pastor Corey's tithing sermon that we reviewed a while back, just a few weeks ago. Um, This is where he engaged in plagiarism. And uh, I unpack what God's Word says about these things and show that Christians are not obligated to keep the Mosaic Covenant's tithe laws. This decision, why, but risk, trust God. Listen, as as a pastor, this church, we we risk it all the time. We gamble all the time. I mean, back in the day, the church was so small. Who cared? I I would come before the leaders and go, okay, let's do this thing. Here's this advertising idea or this new new initiative. Here's this program. Let's take all the money we have in the bank. It was like $26. Let's take all the money we have in the bank and let's do this thing. If it doesn't work, we'll all get part-time jobs at McDonald's because we're charging hell with water pistols and we love Jesus. Who's with me? Right? Right? I mean, I was just fearless like that. Who cares? If it all falls apart, it's all broken anyways. But then the church gets big. Gets property, gets campuses, gets buildings, gets budgets, gets staff. And the temptation for the pastor is, we have too much to risk. We can't gamble. We can't roll the dot. What if it, wow. Why don't you take a risk by, you know, opening up God's Word and actually preaching what it says? Large swaths of God's Word. It can be done, you know. Are you flipping kidding me? If the people who come to sit in this chair, the um, non-believers, if the Bible is true and the stakes for them are heaven or hell, we cannot afford the luxury of playing it safe. We will always be a church that gambles. We will risk. We'll, we'll, 
We'll be provocative. We'll, we'll do things that are kind of edgy things, trying to help someone find this seat. You and want to do something really edgy, something really provocative, preach the word and preach Christ and him crucified for our sins. Call sinners to repent and to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. And more importantly, find our Savior. Amen? In your life, in your life, some of you are playing it too safe. Don't be foolish and blame it on God. But don't overvalue your own comfort. You got to risk. It's the essence of faith. The essence of faith. Um, all right. So I wrote down these things. You, you with me? Yes. No, risk is not the essence of faith. Faith is trust. Trust in whom? For what is the question? Vision, calling, uh, innovation, talent, work, um, risk. And then finally, I wrote down this one. This is going to this is going to help somebody. I'm not sure who you are, uh, but it's how you navigate neg- negativity, dealing with criticism. Because I've just found in life, anytime you try to do something meaningful, especially if you try to do something for God, haters come out of the woodwork. Oh, and, now, finally, we've gotten to the uh, the meat and potatoes of the sermon. It's all about dealing with critics. Oh, hate! As soon as you try to do something for God, haters come out of the woodwork. By the way. Um, I'm not critiquing David Hughes for trying to do something for God. My critique is that he's abandoned what God's Word has told him and commanded him to do as a pastor. And, and negative people and critical people will speak against what you're trying to do in Jesus' name. And so I don't know if this is relevant. Anybody, anybody has a negative person in your life? Anybody has a, a person who's not occasionally critical, chronically critical? Raise your hand. Anybody has, has you got a mean-spirited person? Maybe you brought your mean person to church. Awesome. I hope you did. But you're like, how do I deal with that person? How do I deal with this constant barrage of negativity? I'm trying to do something different. I'm trying to grow. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to get my education. I'm trying to get a promotion. I'm trying to be a better husband or better wife. I'm trying to be a more honoring child. How- yeah, as soon as you decide to be a better husband, you're going to have haters. You don't want to do that. As soon as you want to you know, go to college. Oh, you can't go to college. Oh, that's terrible. What is he talking about? How? how well, I found this... Um, as our church has grown, and our church is, by the way, our church is a very healthy church. We don't have a climate of criticism. We don't have a lot of mean people. We're kind of a nice church, but I, I won't pretend to say over the course of 16 years that everyone has liked everything we've ever done. You try to do something in Jesus' name, and somebody's going to give you some static. Someone will criticize you. So, so what is my personal philosophy of how you handle Criticism. There's three things I do. Write these down. I don't have a Bible verse. If you don't like these, that's fine. No harm, no foul, but I think this is going to help somebody. Uh, number one, if I'm criticized by a mean person, I do this. I want to learn. I want to learn. I want to have a degree of openness. I mean, God might be trying to share something through this, this negative person. I want to learn, but at the same time, you must guard the vision that God has given you. Yeah, you got to guard that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God's going to give you a vision, but you got to guard it, man. So you got to be open to the criticism, but you got to guard the vision. Which there and by the way, he just said no biblical text says this. He's not teaching what scripture teaches. Let me explain that. Explain that. Uh this vision of God is so big, is so eternal, is so kingdom-minded, is so powerful. The enemy is not just going to sit back and watch this unfold in your life. He will come up hard and press against it. And one of the things he leverages, negative people. Critical people. Here's this God call, this God vision. And people are going to come up and criticize it. And you've got to weather the storm and the barrage of their negativity. Now, look for truth. Because sometimes God might speak through even a negative person. Sometimes there's an adjustment you've got to make. I mean, God can speak through anybody. 
In the Old Testament, God spoke through a jackass. He does still today occasionally. So um, just being biblical there, being biblical there. So be open. I want to listen. So if there's a criticism, I want, I want to pray over and say, okay, God, is there something you're giving me to adjust? But I found typically in my life, God does not give me adjustments through distant negative people. The people that speak into my life are these people, people who love me, people who know more than me, very important, and people who believe in me. If you're that person, you can say pretty much anything to me you want to, and I will receive your rebuke. I will receive your criticism. I will make the adjustment. But just random people being mean, negative, don't let that mess with you too badly. Example, my buddy's restaurant, when uh, Padrino's first began to rethink the presentation of their food, you know, what the restaurant looked like, you know, the silverware, uh, the menu, he said he started attracting new people. Started to reach non-Cubans coming to the restaurant. The restaurant got busier, man, exciting. And he was keeping his valued old clients, the Cuban clients. He said, but a few of the old timers started to complain that Padrino's had watered down the Cuban food. Padrino's had watered down the Cuban food. He said, the funny thing was this. The recipes were exactly the same. In fact, it was still his mom back in the kitchen making the food. The food, the meat and the bread, exactly the same. The tres leches, exactly the same. The same, same, same. Catholic, all the same, all the same. They just changed the presentation. Occasionally we get that church by the glaze. Church by the glaze is so creative and stuff. And they got giant chairs. And I think they have watered down the gospel. Please help me. We have not watered down or dumbed down the gospel. Actually, I think we think it up. Because we're about Jesus and his word. So, yeah, then would you preach it in context and actually, you know, call people to repent and to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ? Would you preach Christ and his word correctly and stop ripping verses out of context and making him say things that they don't? Listen, learn, guard the vision that God has given you. Number two, don't be distracted. Don't be distracted. Just keep your head down. And keep working. When they come out and hate on you and criticize you, you see, in our flesh, we want to be defensive and, and, and argue back and lash back. And, oh, no, God called me to do this. And here's why, why, why. But you say this and just, they will drain your energy. Do not be distracted. And in fact, you know, now we have a whole new wave of criticism because we have social media. Now, I love social media. I mean, I love Twitter and Instagram and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I love blogs. There are a great many people, very positive online, so many great blogs. Pastor Chris has a great blog. Uh, Heather's blog is remarkable, by the way. Uh, great, great blogs. They will encourage you. But I found the anonymity of the web allows people in their mama's basement to critique and criticize what you're doing that they haven't done jack themselves. There we go, the ad hominem attack. Yeah, that's an ad hominem right there. So if you have a blog, you live in your mother's basement. Yeah, see... No such thing, really, as a valid critic now, is there in seeker-driven parlance? And why they think they're called gods to be all mean and nasty and critical, I don't know. But they will, they will hate on you. And in your flesh, you want to retaliate and respond. Listen, here's what I've learned. Because I get, I get this. I get this actually pretty often. Uh, I get some people online. I get a blogger. I got recently called me out. Here's his public letter to challenge me to debate and discourse with him. And I'm, I'm like... What they want is this. That person wants, wants you to go, oh, my gosh, you are so wise. 
oh, me, negative online person, you are so smart. And oh, thank you so much. I was so wrong. Thank you for correcting me. Thank you for your wisdom. I love you. Thank you. But if they can't get that, they're almost as happy with me going, you make me so mad. I'm so angry at you. I can't believe I want to argue and debate and lash out and be it. What about the other option? Maybe the reason why somebody is critical is because they're trying to get your attention to pay attention to what God's word says. God's word is the wise thing. If you're going the wrong way and you're doing something contrary to God's word, then it doesn't really matter where the critique is coming from. That person is probably trying to get your attention to focus you not on them, but on what God's word says so that you'll repent and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. How about that option? Know what they can't handle? Don't respond. Ignore them. Makes them crazy, by the way. Ignore them. Just, just let it go. I don't know why they're like that. I don't know why they're mean. I don't know why they're critical. I don't. Thank you. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe they didn't get nurturing as a child. Maybe their mamas didn't hug them. Maybe they wrapped their diapers too tight. I don't know why they're that way. But I got work to do. I got work to do. You critique me from the sidelines while you watch and spectate. I got work to do. My God has called me to his work. Now, let me be practical because I, you live in your world. I live in my world. In church world, in church world, which chair do you think makes the biggest mess? Which chair do you think generates the most negativity? How many, how, how much of God's word, how many verses have we really heard from David Hughes here? And how many of them were in context? And how much did we really learn what God's word really says in this sermon? Nothing. I mean, what, three verses at this point, all out of context? Oh, but he's going back to his chair metaphor, which we've already demonstrated is in direct contradiction to what God's Word says. Is, is it the non-believer? Well, non-believers, you know, they live like non-believers. They're kind of messy. Is it, is it baby believers? Babies are kind of, kind of messy people sometimes. Messy people sometimes trip myself there on the rug. Uh, maturing believers, man, no, they help. They feed, but occasionally. Which chair causes the most trouble? Oh, I know. It's those pesky people who say we want more doctrine and there should be worship in church you know stuff like, those guys oh they're the messiest of them all those me-centered selfish turkeys how dare they say we should have more doctrine and more worship at church who do they think they are they're nothing but a bunch of selfish louts all they think about is me me right right yeah and none of that's true the big fat whiny spiritual baby but pastors, pastors love people. Shocker. Pastors love people, love to shepherd people. So here's the temptation in my flesh, my humanity. If like it's a big, fat, spiritual baby whining, I'm not getting enough doctrine. You need to feed me. I want more programs. Where, where, where? As a pastor, I'm like, oh, I'm not feeding you. I'm not getting, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Here, let me encourage you. Let, let me spend time with you. Let me feed you. Let me. And what you do, you get so distracted, you turn your back on the rest of the table. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. As, as you know, you you actually preach doctrine, and you're going to turn your back on the person who is not yet a Christian. You're going to turn your back by teaching doctrine. Really, really. You're going to turn your back on the new believer by teaching doctrine. That's what it means to turn your back on them. You're going to turn your back on maturing Christians by teaching doctrine. This metaphor not only doesn't make sense, like I pointed out from God's word, 
it is directly contradicting what God's word commands pastors to do. And uh, God has called me to feed the family, feed the family, care for the people who are hungry and unselfish and imperfect. But that's, that's why, that's why, man, if these people are just hating on you all the time, there's no truth. Just, just, just shake it off. You got work to do. Amen. You got work to do. You got God's work to do in your life. Do not be distracted by chronically critical people, especially at a distance from you. And then somebody's going, well, David, what if this person's not a distant person? Somebody in my life right now, what if... Yeah, whatever you do, don't listen to guys on the radio or guys who have podcasts, like that fighting for the faith guy. Don't listen to him. He's all the way up in North Dakota. Yeah, he doesn't understand. We're, we, we, got, we got people to take care of. We, we can't give them doctrine. What if this person, because I... I I don't respond to them in the way they want. What if they, what if they leave me? What if they abandon me? Let them go. Number three, release them. Release them. Don't go chase them and, oh, I'm so sorry. Please come back. Please, please, please. I'm so, we'll change everything. We'll make you happy. Don't, don't do that stuff. Now, don't do it in a mean way. Cue sappy music. By the way, this is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the auditorium, ready to do business with people. In this case, well, he's shored up, you know, the people there at uh, at Church by the Glades and made sure that they find any person who's complaining about the fact that there's no doctrine, <laughs> no worship there at Church by the Glades, that they're driven out and shamed for being so selfish. Yet, this wasn't based upon a biblical teaching or a biblical text. In fact, this whole teaching is contradicted by God's word. Don't kick them in the butt as they leave. Don't, you know, uh, I'm a shepherd, man. It brings a tear to my eye when someone unplugs. And I wish I could say in these 16 years, no one's ever left. And everybody liked everything we did at all times. And, you know, everybody who came in the front door stayed. It's not the case. Now, again, our church does not have a culture of negativity. I mean, people do plug in and stay and journey and go from chair to chair to chair. And it's so very, very cool as that happens. And we don't have much of this at all. In fact, these people here have no influence, by the way. Um, but over the years, some people have left. As a shepherd, that breaks your heart. But I've learned this. Don't chase them. Let them go. Now, if they want to come back and repent, play nice, man, all is forgiven. Come back, let's do this thing. Repent for wanting doctrine from their pastor? Repent for wanting worship at a church service? Repent as if that's a sin? Let's change the world, but don't be all freaked out because someone leaves you. They run out on you. David, that sounds kind of harsh. Sounds kind of harsh. I think we should be more. I think we should be. No, no, it's biblical. But why has our church grown? Here's the answer. We've got a big front door. Big front door. You guys make it your holy habit. You invite people to the house. You're going to grab a bunch of X cards. Let me know what X is. And invite people to come to the Christmas thing. And we get people to sit in this chair all the time. We get unchurched, non-believing people. And they choose Christ. And they become baby believers. Because we have a big, big front door. That's why God has grown our church. Well, David, do we have a back door? Yeah. Sadly, some people trickle out the back door. Some people unplug us. That's okay. We release them, it's fine, it's not, not a bad, most of them leave very nice, some don't, but that's okay. Sounds kind of harsh, no, biblical, biblical. Let me show you. The Bible talks about the table some, but the main metaphor it uses for the church is a body. Romans, 1 Corinthians, a body, we are a body, we're all members of one body. Now your, your physical body has a front door. 
As front door, that's where you put your food. Has a front door, right? So you bring in nutrition. Your physical body has a front door. Now your physical body also has a back door. So people who leave church by the glades because they're not being fed, they the the gospel is watered down. God's word is ripped out of context. There's not worship there. He's comparing them to human excrement. No joke. Just saying, you don't want the back door of your physical body all plugged up, do you? That's problematic if that happens. I just went too far for somebody. I'm just being scriptural right here. You don't want that to happen. There are many unhealthy... Yeah, no, you're not being scriptural when you're saying that the people who are leaving because they're saying, listen, we need doctrine here. We need God's word. You need to stop watering down the gospel. You need to preach Christ and him crucified. And church is supposed to have worship. And what's going on here is just a circus. By the way, they did a circus there, Circus by the Glades. So comparing them to the the body of Christ's excrement, that's not biblical. That is That is reprehensible what you're doing. Healthy churches in America, they're simply constipated churches. They're big, fat, spiritual babies running amok, unchallenged, undealt with. They threaten to leave. Man, that church needs some Holy Ghost ex-lax. Let them go in Jesus' name. Let them go in Jesus' name. But David, if this person leaves me, oh my gosh, I lean on. What if they abandon me? Listen, if they can leave you, they're not necessary for you to arrive at God's great destination for your life. You see, because they're necessary for you to arrive at that destination, it'd be impossible for them to leave you. But by the fact they left you shows they're, indisp- they're dispensable for you. Go on and do the work that God has for you. Don't be arrogant. Be teachable. But my God has great things for your life. For you are called. You are innovative. You are talented. You are gifted. You are hardworking. You're a risk taker. You'll be criticized. Now he sounds like Joel Osteen. In Jesus' name. Father, thank you for who you are. Done. Wow. Wow. So the people who are leaving church by the glades because they're not being fed the word of God. There's no doctrine there. The gospel's being watered down and God's word is being twisted. And they're pointing it out. Well, they've just been called excrement. Wow. And just when I thought it couldn't really get that much worse, it has. Pray for the people at Church by the Glades. Pray that those who are there would hear the truth. Those who know there's something wrong, they don't know how to put their finger on it, pray that they would listen to this program and see and hear from God's Word what is wrong at Church by the Glades and, and leave, or better yet, that David Hughes would listen and repent because he is sinning by doing what he's doing. What we heard there was literally 45 minutes of sinful messages, not from God's word, but from somewhere else. What do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, vicarious death on the cross, for all of your sins. Amen.